Welcome everybody to episode three, my third podcast from On Die France. You may remember that episode one focused on Hemingway's time here in 1925, and the second episode focused on his time here in 1927. Today, we're going to roll the clock forward two more years. Ernest came back to Andai again in 1929, and this, this is the subject of today's podcast. Andai is pronounced Andai, though if you were to spell it the way we would say it in America, it looks like Hyundai, but the correct pronunciation is Andai. Hemingway was excited to be returning to Europe after having spent a year in America. He was excited to be coming back to Europe not so much because of Paris here, because he had burned a few bridges with the publication of his book, The Sun Also Rises. Rather, he was excited to come back to Paris, set up his home base at the apartment at 6 Rue des Ferrues, and then he could use Paris as his base to go to Pamplona again, to return to the bullfights and the feria and the corrida. And then he could also go back to the beaches of San Sebastian, and then here in France, Saint-Jean-de-Luz, and here right now in Andai. Before talking in much detail about 1929, though, it's helpful to let you know just what a big year in Ernest's life had 1928 been. Let's look back. You might remember that he and Pauline were married in May of 1927, but a few months later, she became pregnant with Patrick, and the baby was due smack dab in the middle of June, or near the end of June in 1928. So, Ernest and Pauline were looking forward to the uh, birth of their first child. Also, something happened just before they set sail in 1928 that is memorable to almost all Hemingway aficionados. It was the famous skylight incident. Early morning on March 4, at this apartment in Paris, the one on 6 Rue Ferru, which Pauline's uncle Gus had been paying the rent, a skylight came crashing down on his head. He had gotten up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, and instead of pulling the chain for the toilet, he pulled the chain to the skylight. And the skylight had been compromised earlier because a friend had come over earlier and pulled the wrong chain, and he actually put a crack into this heavy skylight. And so it was compromised. Well, when Ernest came into the bathroom, at two in the morning, he too pulled the wrong cord and this heavy skylight came crashing down on his head. The accident caused a gaping wound in his forehead and it required nine stitches. The stitches were above his left eye and the wound didn't heal very well. And from that point forward, in all photos of Ernest taken in his life after this, you could see this very pronounced horseshoe scar above his left eye. Pauline kiddingly said that if it took a skylight to come crashing down on his head to help him get over his writer's block, that maybe they should, quote, bleed him more often. 
Um, the good news for Ernest is right after this incident occurred, he began writing uh, A Farewell to Arms. And of course, in that book, he gave the protagonist, Lieutenant Frederick Henry, a horseshoe scar and a head laceration, rather a head laceration and a concussion during the war in Italy, in World War I. We'll come back to that at the end of this audio today. Okay, back to when Ernest and Pauline set sail at the end of March. They wanted to go to Key West because their friend John Dos Passos had recommended it to them. He had said that Key West was almost like an island into itself. And he had written Ernest saying, the air smelled of the Gulf Stream. After spending two nights in Havana, the Hemingways made their way by ferry to Key West, which was only 100 miles north of Havana. And they arrived in early April of 1928. After Ernest and Pauline made some new friends and bounced around from one apartment to another for a, a few months, they took off for Kansas City because that's where they wanted uh, their baby to be born. Patrick was born at the end of June, in, uh, actually on June 28, and after an excruciating period of long and painful labor, Pauline's nine-pound baby was delivered by cesarean section, with Ernest looking on. This event was unforgettable to Ernest, and it left an indelible imprint on him. In fact, he remembered the episode so vividly that he used this to craft his unforgettable ending to A Farewell to Arms. At one point, Ernest wanted, Ernest, Ernest wanted his father, Dr. Ed Hemingway, to be the attending physician at Pauline's delivery, if not in Oak Park, Illinois, perhaps Petoskey, Michigan. But ultimately, Dr. Hemingway begged off, and we kind of now know why. In the summer of 1928, he was beginning his freefall into despair. He had suffered from depression all of his life, at least all of his adult life. Now he was having angina attacks and his diabetes forced him to change his diet. And he loved food and changing to a bland diet of a diabetic was not his idea of happiness. As Ernest was busy writing A Farewell to Arms in the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming after Patrick was born, Patrick and Pauline stayed behind in Pickett, Arkansas. That's where Pauline's parents lived. Well, he completed his first draft about the time Pauline arrived at the uh, one of the dude ranches near Sheridan, Wyoming. And together on August 18, Pauline and Ernest got in the car and they headed west because Ernest had heard a lot about the Yellowstone uh, uh, park and he had heard about the great hunting of uh, northern Wyoming and southern Montana and so they toured the west for several weeks and they even stopped in to see a gentleman named or Owen Wister and it's either Wister or Wister um, but Owen Wister had written The Virginian and had written a number of other very famous westerns and Ernest looked up to him and he made his acquaintance in uh, Shell, Wyoming. Well, 
Ernest's father just couldn't handle it anymore. While Pauline and Ernest had returned to Key West in November, Ernest's father was struggling. And it all came to a head when Dr. Hemingway shot himself with a Civil War revolver on December 6, 1928. This happened at Ernest's boyhood home of Oak Park, Illinois. As the oldest male child in a family with six children, Ernest was now head of household. His new worries now included how would he care for his uh, overbearing and somewhat um, uh, obnoxious mother, Grace? How would he care for his two younger siblings, Carol and Lester? By the way, when I said Grace was obnoxious, she was not an ob obnoxious woman. She was a brilliant opera singer, but from Ernest's perspective, she was obnoxious because she never really approved of uh, Ernest's writing and she despised the, the Sun Also Rises. Well, 1928 was in fact then such a big year, but Ernest had a lot of reasons to be happy. The baby, Patrick, was a, was a strapping little kid and he was happy and healthy. Uh, the, the, the serial rights for A Farewell to Arms had been serialized to Scribner's Magazine for a whopping $18,000. Ernest and Pauline were excited to be going back to Europe. Uh, they knew they were going to be coming back to America, but coming back to uh, Paris and to Europe in spring 1929 gave Ernest this wonderful feeling of going back to the bullring and uh, going back to the beaches here in southwest France. So Pauline, baby Patrick, Bumby, the child from uh, the first marriage with Hadley, and Ernest's sister Sunny set sail for Paris in April 1929. He hadn't yet written the ending to A Farewell to Arms, at least as far as the ending which would appear in the, the book form. In early May 1929, Ernest worked diligently to rewrite the ending. And we know he had 30, maybe 40 different endings, and, and he just couldn't quite settle on one. But here he did, in Ondai, in May 1929, he was here for two weeks. And during that two-week period, his main goal for writing was to get this ending right. And boy, did he ever. I'll read a couple passages uh, from that in just a moment. Um, let's talk about Andai today. Andai is a city of about 16,000 people, and it's nestled in the very southwest corner of France, along what is known as the Bay of Biscay. And the Bay of Biscay is on the Atlantic Ocean. And as I record this podcast today, I'm looking straight out from my fifth floor apartment on the beach of Andai. I can see white sailboats sailing in the distance on this beautiful day on November, I think it's November 22. And I see surfers uh, somewhere in the ocean. I see one carrying a surfboard just below me here. And to the left, I see the famous lighthouse. Andai has been a working harbor. It has a magnificently beautiful port that is home to not only working fishing boats, 
but to the sailboats that I'm looking at now, and even to small yachts for the rich and famous. Across the channel, you can take a 10-minute boat ride and be in Andaribia, Spain, where the tapas are tasty and the Rioja wine is better than the Bordeaux of French, I think. And in fact, it's even growing on me. It's better, I think, than the Cabernet Sauvignon of Napa Valley. Well, I digress. Andai and Andaribia rest on the banks of the Bitasoa River, and it acts as a border between France and Spain. Now, what did Hemingway think of Andai? Well, we, can, we don't have to wonder, because in chapter 4 of The Garden of Eden, which was published posthumously after Ernest died in 1961, Ernest said this, it was late afternoon, <clears throat> rather, it was late afternoon and the small low car came down from the black road across the hills and headlands with the dark blue ocean always on the right onto a deserted boulevard that bordered a flat beach of two miles of yellow sand at Andai. Well ahead on the ocean side, was the bulk of a big hotel and a casino, and on the left there were newly planted trees and Basque villas. The two young people in the car rode down the boulevard slowly, looking out at the magnificent beach and at the mountains of Spain that showed blue in this light as the car passed the casino and the big hotel and went on toward the end of the boulevard. Ahead was the mouth of the river that flowed into the ocean. The tide was out and across the bright sand they saw the ancient Spanish town and the green hills across the bay and the far point, the lighthouse. They stopped the car. It's a lovely place, the girl said. There's a cafe with tables under the trees, the young man said old trees. Well, I hope you enjoy this old-time French music. It's uh, free music off the internet. It's from the 1930s. And uh, as I get ready to close this, uh, this podcast, I'd like to read you a letter that Ernest sent Owen Wister in March. It was actually March 1 of 1928. And Part of this letter read, and mind you, Ernest wrote a whole lot differently. Uh, he wrote letters differently than he wrote his literature, but take a load of this. He says, Dear Owen, if you are damaged goods about taking care of the human machine, let me be as damaged as you are at age 68, and I'll be happy. In 1919, I had, still have, an aluminum kneecap. Bad heart, fine now. Hole in the throat about two inches deep, all right now. But have to watch it. Also have after effects of concussion of brain, couldn't sleep, etc. All right now. Various other minor infirmities. Now I'm in good shape, but don't look forward to expect a long life. Burned too much 
too early. Now, that letter, we can unpack a whole lot there, but the last sentence is a bit ominous. He says, I'm in good shape, but I don't look forward to expect a long life because he's lived so hard and he's burned so much so early. That's, you know, that's a little dark. But the point I want to make now here is he made four comments about his health then uh, that were, weren't true. Did he have an aluminum kneecap? Abjectly false. Although after World War I, he often told the story about hurting his knee and catching a bullet behind the knee and needing a new aluminum kneecap after. That is blatantly false. Secondly, bad heart. Well, in 1928, he didn't have a bad heart. He did maybe in 1958 when he was being treated for hypertension, but he didn't or wasn't diagnosed with any heart problems in his late 20s by any means. What about that hole in the throat? Which he gives Worcester the impression that he may have gotten that in 1919 or certainly about the time of his World War I injuries. Well, yes, he had a hole in the throat all right, but he got that when he was a little boy in Lake Windermere carrying milk pails. And he stumped, he was carrying a stick in one hand and the milk pails in another, and he fell. And as he tumbled, the pointed end of the stick put a gouge in his throat. And that gouge was very hard to stop bleeding. And thank goodness his father was a doctor. But all of his life, Ernest's younger brother, Lester, had to hear from his parents. Be careful with that knife or be careful with that instrument. You remember what happened to Ernest. Well, that episode or that, that vignette was told to us by Lester Hemingway in his autobiography in 1962. It's the last lie that's the big one about the concussion of the brain and couldn't sleep. Well, Ernest had insomnia before 1919, and whether or not he had a concussion, that's the big issue that I dispute in my book. I say that the weight of the evidence says no. He gave the concussion to Frederick Henry, and he gave the head lacerations to Frederick Henry in a farewell to arms. But nothing was said about a concussion or a head injury or any lacerations in the Red Cross reports back home after Ernest was injured. Ernest said nothing about this initially in his letters home, but as the letters home grew more and more heroic, that's when he talked about having lost consciousness and carrying a, an Italian over his shoulder the length of a hundred yards to safety. Well, we know for a fact that he never did that either. And if you want to know why it's a fact, please tune in and uh, I'll talk more about this in future podcasts. I'll read that ending to a farewell to arms some other time, but from now on, I'm going to go outside and sniff some of that air from the Basque Country. And I think I'm going to go swimming in Saint-Jean-de-Luz. I'm out for now. A bientôt and au revoir.